Bienvenue and welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories of French history. My apologies for a slightly tardy episode. Those of you who follow The Land of Desire on Facebook saw that I've been pretty under the weather. I've also been preparing for a very special event this Wednesday, April 26th. On Wednesday, the San Francisco Legion of Honor Museum will be launching its new book club, Page Views, in honor of their newest exhibit, Monet, The Early Years. To help kick off their first meeting of Page Views, the Legion of Honor has asked me to co-host this first meeting, where we'll be discussing Ross King's history of Impressionism, The Judgment of Paris. We'll be streaming this first meetup on Facebook Live for those of you who can't join us in person. For more details about attending the event or watching the live stream, visit The Land of Desire on Facebook. It should come as no surprise that today's episode follows, you guessed it, a young Claude Monet. Many of us know the story of Monet's struggles for recognition, his long years of rejection and poverty before Impressionism caught on, and some of you may even be lucky enough to have visited his former home in the village of Giverny. What most people don't know is that Claude Monet's home life was seriously unconventional, even for a bohemian renegade. You might even call it, and I'm sorry in advance, a monage à trois. This week, we'll learn more about Claude Monet's extraordinary house guests in my newest episode, Four's a Crowd. The spring of 1865 brought nothing but rain, rain, rain to the quiet village inn called the Cheval Blanc. On and on, day after day, the incessant showers pounded on the windows, frustrating the efforts of the young artist waiting inside. At 25 years old, he was hungry for recognition, and he had just finished submitting a few of his best works so far to the Paris Salon. Would the glory and fame of the biggest, most prestigious art exhibition of the year be his? Or would he receive a letter asking him impatiently to arrange for the pickup of his pathetic submissions, now stamped with a big red R on the back of the canvas, refused? There was nothing to do but wait, to paint something else to get his mind off of things. But the wet weather of the countryside was not helping. It was the perfect moment for a bored young man to distract himself by falling in love. So it was that in the wet weather of early 1865, the young Claude Monet met the first of his two great loves, Camille Dancieux. Seventeen years old, fair-skinned, dark-haired, Camille was a heartbreaker and the two young people spent that spring in a dreamy haze of first love. First, the young lovers stayed at the Cheval Blanc, staying dry and running up bills they'd never be able to repay. Later, when the landlord came knocking, they darted into the only other inn in town, where they ran up newer, fresher debts. When the weather finally began to clear, the fastidious Claude Monet covered up the fine clothes he couldn't really afford with a coat and dragged his easel through the mud into the forest. 
his forest sketches began coalescing into a new dream. An epic painting, a painting the world wouldn't dare ignore. A huge canvas depicting men and women enjoying a picnic in the sun-dappled woods. As the rains cleared and Monet headed back to Paris, the painting began taking shape and the models were selected. First, of course, his best friend and fellow painter, Frédéric Basile. Then, his influential mentor, Gustave Courbet. And finally, front and center, a beautiful woman leaning low into the sunlight, looking peacefully into the distance. Here, in a spectacular fashion, Monet introduced the world to his model and mistress for the first time. Sort of. To anybody with eyes to see and a heart to feel, Claude and Camille had something special going on. But back at the Monet family headquarters, Monet's father and aunt had some pretty firm ideas about marriage, and an even firmer hold on the family purse strings. This scandalous young woman, this once respectable daughter of a merchant who had since turned to <gasps> modeling? Heaven forbid. Claude was in no position to argue. A year after the rainy spring at the Cheval Blanc, his creditors finally caught up to him. Claude's romantic getaway was hardly his first case of overspending. He'd been helpless with money from the start. Only a few years earlier, when Monet and his friend, Renoir, were living together in a freezing apartment eating beans, Monet kept buying fine suits on credit from the tailor. When the tailor asked him to pay up, the young Monet was affronted. Monsieur, if you persist in badgering me like this, I shall have to take my custom elsewhere. By the winter of 1866, Monet's financial situation was more dire than ever. Even while her existence remained a secret from the Monet family, Camille realized she was about to add to its number. Claude Monet was going to be a father. The next summer, Claude Monet's dreams and nightmares came true at once. His father discovered Camille's existence, and worse, her pregnancy. Voila! Monet was cut off from the family finances. Desperate, Monet began begging his friends for money. Couldn't his old friend, Frédéric Basile, help? Unfortunately not. Completely broke, Monet was forced to move back home with his parents, pretending that he'd broken things off with Camille, painting as fast as possible in the hopes that someone, anyone, would buy his work. No such luck. On August 8, 1867, while Monet was wringing his hands at his dad's house, Camille gave birth to a son, Jean. She was by herself in a shabby, one-room studio in the red-light district of Paris. For the next three years, Claude and Camille moved around from town to town, trying to outrun their creditors the way they had in their sweetheart days, while Monet scrounged for patrons. It wasn't until the summer of 1870, when the threat of the invading Prussian army gave everybody a little perspective on their problems, and Camille and Claude gave up the ghost, stopped caring what their families thought, and married one another at last, before making their way onto a refugee ship bound for England. The trip to England turned out to be the best decision in Monet's career so far. In a truly 
unexpected turn of events, no offense to England, the other side of the channel was way more open-minded about French Impressionism, and a few dealers proved themselves way ahead of the curve by purchasing dozens of works from Monet and his friends. Within a few years, these English patrons inspired a few more collectors back in France to take a second look at these strange young artists. Nobody was living in any kind of luxury, but at last, Claude and Camille owned a little home of their own in the countryside, just outside Paris. Here, Claude had peace and quiet and sweet, sweet time. Time to play with his young son, time to study the changing light in his garden, and time to sit for hours painting his beautiful wife. Claude Monet had no idea that he was about to meet a man who would turn his entire life upside down. Ernest Hochadet hid some surprisingly avant-garde taste behind his business suit and handlebar mustache. He was the owner of a successful line of department stores, having come from money and married into more of it. He and his wife, Alice, lived large in Paris, where they divided their time between running the family business, collecting Impressionist artworks, and throwing parties for friends in their chateau in the suburbs. For a number of years, Ernest Hochadet basically single-handedly kept the Impressionists out of the poorhouse, buying works off Degas, Pizarro, and Sisley, and above all others, Claude Monet. In 1876, Ernest and Alice commissioned Monet to paint a series of landscapes to decorate their chateau. It was perfect timing for Monet. Years of bliss in the countryside were beginning to turn into years of boredom and empty pockets. Money and a vacation sounded like the doctor's orders. The chateau was like something out of a dream. The big white mansion decorated with roses and some seriously self-confident turkeys. Once Ernest Hochadet set up Monet with a tiny studio and some payday advances, the artist was in bliss, spending his days the way we all wish we could, painting turkeys. Unfortunately, Monet's dream was about to become a nightmare. If there's one lesson history teaches us, it's that painting turkeys leads us on an irrevocable path to sin. We'll never know exactly how or when, but at some point in that long, lazy summer, Claude Monet and Alice Hochadet became more than friends. How could Monet be tempted from his beautiful, loving wife of so many years? Perhaps the words of Ernest's own mother give us a clue. She possesses wit, intelligence in plenty, and strength of will. What fate awaits you? Alice loved throwing parties, collecting art, and men who outspent their incomes. And while she and Monet were off frightening the turkeys, Ernest's vast fortune secretly began to unravel. As one author put it, once Ernest inherited the family business, he bustled around trying to look busy. The man had no idea what he was doing, except when it came to throwing money away. Without Alice's knowledge, Ernest began relying on her dowry money to fund their lavish lifestyle, all while the family business discreetly but firmly kicked him out before he ran it into the ground. 
even as they treated Claude Monet to sumptuous dinners and rented private trains to haul party guests in and out of town, Ernest and Alice Hochedet were spinning quietly and quickly towards poverty. Just as the rainy summer with Camille eventually gave way to sun, so too did the sultry summer at the chateau draw to an end. Monet's paintings were done. The commission was finished, and it was time to move on to the next project. Luckily for Monet, his next artistic impulse was a lucrative one. Despite the skepticism of his dealers and friends, Monet decided to paint an entire series on the Guerre Salazar train station. To everyone's astonishment, these strange industrial works sold. With a little change in his pocket, Claude Monet headed home at long last to see his half-forgotten wife and child. Unfortunately, his old spending habits had, if anything, gotten even worse after a summer at the chateau. Immediately, he used his Gare Saint-Lazare money to rent a nice house and fill it with servants. Gardeners, laundresses, florists, caterers. It seemed half the town was employed by Monet. Unfortunately, none of them were paid by Monet. Despite earning a very respectable income of 15,000 francs in 1877, somehow Monet found himself, you guessed it, outrunning his debts. And in 1877, he wasn't the only one. That summer, Ernest Hochedet, the bumbling businessman and hapless husband, received a summons from his business partners, calling him to Paris. He never made it to the board meeting. In fact, he never made it to Paris. Ernest Hochedet wasn't in town, he wasn't at home at his chateau, as it turned out, he wasn't even in France. Knowing that the jig was up, Ernest fled the wrath of his wife all the way to Belgium. As he wrote to Alice, My beloved wife, what can I call you now? I lost my head. I wanted to kill myself. I can't stay in Paris. Am I to go on living for your sake and for the sake of our beloved children? Don't let anyone try to find me or I will kill myself. As though her husband's emotional and financial devastation wasn't bad enough, Alice was pregnant. In fact, she'd been pregnant just long enough to throw the baby's father into question if anyone was paying attention. Luckily, no one was paying attention because Alice's family life was turning upside down. The chateau was seized. Her furniture was repossessed. All of her art, including the works by Renoir, Sisley, and of course Monet, were sold at auction for scraps. By the end of August, the penniless, homeless Alice was on a train to her sister's house. Halfway there, the train had to be stopped so that Alice could give birth on the train compartment floor. Speaking of pregnant ladies who needed Claude Monet at hand, Camille was due to give birth again, and she wasn't doing well. Some kind of serious illness, maybe it was tuberculosis, put her life in jeopardy, and this being 1877, nobody had any genuinely useful medical solutions. By the end of the year, Claude and Camille prepared to sell their own house and possessions to avoid having them seized the way that Alice Hochedet's had been in order to move back to Paris. 
between Alice's traumatic train ride and Camille's declining health, it wasn't a good time to be Claude Monet's woman. Thanks to the help of a few loyal, wealthy friends willing to buy Claude Monet's paintings at a time of crisis, the Monet family found an apartment just in time for the birth of young Michel on March 17, 1878. A few months later, Claude Monet's painting of a patriotic street celebration in Paris found an unexpected buyer, the recently returned Ernest Hochedet, who immediately turned around and resold the painting for a small profit of a hundred francs, hoping in some small way to help pay down his debts. But this was essentially a waste of time. In a year in which a Parisian doctor might earn an income of 9,000 francs per year, Ernest Hochedet was in debt a staggering 2 million francs to over 150 creditors. Everything became a farce. In the world of the Impressionists, it was the broke holding up the starving. Something had to break, and when it did, it shocked everyone. By August 1878, Claude Monet had had enough of Paris, and he wanted to try, yet again, moving to the countryside, where he could work and paint landscapes in peace. He would be able to bring Camille back to a tranquil environment where she could recover, and raise his children in beautiful nature, where they would be free from the smoke and noise of the city. There was nothing surprising about this move. In fact, it seems as though the Monet family traveled on a pendulum, constantly shifting back and forth from the city to the country as their income allowed. What nobody expected was that Monet and his family weren't the only ones moving in. In a large house at the end of a row at the end of a small village cut off from the railway and the outside world, Claude Monet moved in with Camille, their two sons, Alice Hochedet, and her six children. The town, and Paris at large, was scandalized. There's only one proper dress between the two of them, snarked the gossips. They have to take turns to see who wears it. Half the servants quit out of disgust. We don't have any record of Camille's feelings, but I imagine it's not too hard to figure out. In a freezing house with no heating, Camille began drinking to stay warm, and possibly to stay numb. Claude Monet asked Alice Hochedet to help take care of Camille. The nerve of this guy. As if the situation wasn't weird and tense enough, all of a sudden, the household gained another member. Yes, that's right, Ernest Hochedet, perhaps France's dumbest or most desperate husband, still needed a place to live. 13 of the world's most uncomfortable people now shared a house, with mounting bills and mounting tension, raising chickens and rabbits trying to make it through a freezing winter without dying or killing one another. By the following spring, Monet couldn't take it anymore. I'm absolutely sickened, he wrote one of his friends and frequent creditors, sickened with and demoralized by this life I've been leading for so long. When you get to my age, there is nothing more to look forward to. Unhappy we are, unhappy we'll stay. Each day brings its own tribulations, and each day difficulties arise, from which we can never quite free ourselves. I no longer have the strength to work in such conditions. 
Oh, Monet. If only there was literally anything else you could have done to avoid this. But then, who amongst us hasn't asked their mistress, their mistress's husband, and their mistress's six children to move in and hang out with the wife? Tale as old as time, right? Camille was dying. All day, she would lay on the sofa watching the children play as she grew weaker by the hour. It was clear that she was nearing the end, and her looming death made a difficult situation intolerable. Naturally, the two husbands decided it was a good time to make it all about them. Monet took out his fury on Ernest Hochadet for being a waste of space and money. I mean, fair enough, honestly, but still, yikes. I can't imagine we are very good company for you and Madame Hochadet, with me becoming even more bitter and my wife ill the whole time. We must be a hindrance to your plans. As in, please don't feel obligated to keep living under my roof and eating my food. Monet began leaving his dying wife's bedside in search of income. At this point, the remarkable Alice Hochadet lost it. Here's a woman spending 24 hours a day caring for the impossibly saintly, dying wife of her lover, all while her own pathetic, irresponsible husband lurks around every corner of the house, too afraid to say what's really on his mind. Meanwhile, Monet's heart was breaking in slow motion. As he wrote a friend, For a long time I have been hoping for better days ahead, but alas... I believe the time has come for me to abandon all hope. I'm just terrified by the sight of my poor wife's life in jeopardy. It's unbearable to see her suffering so much. The letter finishes with yet another plea for money. On September 5th, 1879, at 10.30 in the morning, Camille Monet died at the age of only 32. Alice Hochadet had been by her side the entire time, and despite what the reassuring tributes might have you think about Camille's peaceful death, Alice confirmed that her death was long and horrible. She was conscious until the last minute. It was heartbreaking to see her say goodbye to her children. For the next few days, a strange tableau unfolded. Alice Hochadet kept vigil over the wife of her own lover, caring for Camille's body and Camille's children with great tenderness and affection. Monet was overwhelmed with grief, unable to stop his artistic impulses, unable to do anything but paint one final portrait of his wife on her deathbed, while Alice hovered in the background, preparing Camille's funeral. It's impossible for me to even pretend to know what Alice was thinking at the time, how she'd felt for this long year, how Camille had felt for this long year. While Monet and Ernest Hochadet spent their time bickering and scavenging for the money they'd spent so recklessly, these two women managed to forge an unusual truce, an uneasy peace with one another. For a year, Camille had been forced to share her home with the woman who shared her husband's bed. Alice had been forced to care for the wife of her lover, cleaning her, bathing her, feeding her. Their two sons played together. Were they just friends, or were they secretly half-brothers? It was an experiment in disastrous living arrangements, but the two women found a way to persevere. But once Camille died, the truce was over. 
burn everything. That was Alice's command. Burn letters written by Camille, burn photos taken of Camille, erase every trace of her existence. Alice was the only woman in Monet's life now. Soon, Monet would be the only man in hers. As the creditors came calling once again, one anecdote tells of a creditor smashing a vase of flowers over the piano when a florist bill went unpaid, Ernest Hoshide finally woke up. He was moving out. And wouldn't Alice come with him? For the next two years, Ernest begged his wife to move out of Claude Monet's home and join them. She refused, and even wrote back, Your behavior towards Monsieur Monet creates a very strange and completely unexpected situation. Yeah, Ernest, why are you making things weird? Alice couldn't make up her mind. Should she stay or should she go? Should she follow her impoverished but legitimate husband or risk her respectability to follow the man she loved? After nearly 20 years of women putting up with any ridiculous living situation to be close to his genius, Claude Monet faced a real threat of being left behind. My eyes are swimming with tears, he wrote Alice in desperation. Can it really be true? Must I really get used to the idea of living without you? Uh, no, Monet. This is a woman who was willing to move in with her love's wife and kids while everyone watched. She is not going to let a little social disapproval scare her away. After hemming and hawing, Ernest gave up at long last. Nevertheless, Monet was shook and knew he really had to make good on his promises of love and devotion and stability. On April 29, 1883, Monet finally found his forever home. Looking absentmindedly out a train window one day, Monet had noticed the tiny ancient village of Giverny, 50 miles outside Paris. Here, on the river's edge, stood the two-story house with pink walls and a struggling garden in which Monet and Alice would spend the rest of their lives. Once settled, as Monet wrote his art dealer, I hope to produce masterpieces because I like the countryside very much. Over the next few years, Monet dedicated himself to the gardens, transforming the grounds into a dreamscape, a love letter to Alice, and at long last, a permanent home. Here, Monet first found himself intoxicated by a sight which would take the rest of his life to capture. I have gone back to some things that can't possibly be done, he wrote an art critic in 1890. Water, with weeds waving at the bottom. It is a wonderful sight, but it drives one crazy to try to paint it. But that is the kind of thing I am always tackling. In 1891, Alice received a letter which must have brought a strange mixture of grief and relief all at the same time. Ernest Hoshide was dying, his years of heavy drinking and eating finally catching up with him. Once again, Alice found herself at the bedside of an uneasy friend, nursing them through their final days. When Ernest Hoshide passed away, Claude Monet insisted on paying for his funeral. In 1892, after 16 years in the shadows of respectability, Alice and Claude finally married. 
Together, the two built Giverny into a temple to art, complete with the water garden, the pond, and the water lilies immortalized in Monet's most famous paintings. My garden is my most beautiful masterpiece, he said. Everything I have earned has gone into these gardens. In the following decades, dozens of artists would make the pilgrimage to Giverny, meeting with Monet and his family, setting up an easel next to the visionary, even marrying into the family from time to time. As the gardens grew, so at long last did Monet's fortune and fame. The man once shunned as a lunatic or an incompetent fool was now celebrated as a genius. By the sheer luck of outliving the rest of the Impressionists, Monet alone saw success in his own lifetime. Suddenly, he was a national treasure, with buyers stopping by Giverny to spend lavish amounts on whatever he'd just finished. And he had finished a lot. Monet completed over 250 paintings of the home he and Alice had built together. He spent his new money spoiling his grandchildren, growing his garden, and buying fast cars. He got his first speeding ticket at the age of 64. By 1912, Monet was earning nearly 400,000 francs per year. That was the same amount someone had recently paid for the Hope Diamond. He was still working as hard as ever, constantly inspired by his own gardens. These landscapes of water and reflection have become an obsession for me, he wrote in 1909. It is beyond my strength as an old man, and yet I want to render what I feel. But Claude Monet was about to enter the darkest period of his entire life. In 1911, Alice Hochede Monet finally passed away. Claude and Alice spent 35 years together, more than three times the length of Claude's marriage to Camille. I am annihilated, Monet wrote to a friend. The painter is dead, and what remains is an inconsolable husband. Monet threatened to put down his paints altogether. A waste of effort, he wrote. When I compared my works with what I used to do in the old days, I would fall into a frantic rage, and I slashed all my pictures with my penknife. Just as in his youth, Monet relied on the support of his friends to sustain his painting career. As his dearest friend wrote, you still have great and beautiful things to do. As his final crowning achievement, the French government commissioned an enormous, unparalleled work from Claude Monet. No fewer than 22 massive murals installed permanently in the Musée de l'Orangerie. It would take him a decade to finish, and it would be Claude Monet's greatest gift to France. Rooms of tranquility and peace, a garden for everyone. In 1926, just months before his enormous masterpieces made their public debut, Claude Monet passed away at the age of 86. He was buried in Giverny, and he left instructions for his funeral. Above all, remember I want neither flowers nor wreaths. Those are vain honors, and it would be a sacrilege to plunder the flowers of my garden for an occasion such as this. Instead, the flowers of his garden 
the last souvenirs of Monet's happiness and the life he had built with Alice, entered into their own kind of immortality. In early 1927, the Musée de l'Orangerie debuted Claude Monet's final work, a series of round rooms giving, as Monet once wrote, the illusion of an endless hole, of a wave with no horizon and no shore, whose walls were filled with all-encompassing panoramas of rippling ponds and dancing, endless water lilies. Thank you for listening to The Land of Desire. My name is Diana, and I research, write, and produce every episode of the show. To learn more about sources for today's episode, visit the website at www.thelandofdesire.com for portraits of the Monet clan, including one seriously awkward family photograph. On The Land of Desire's Facebook page, I'll share more information about the San Francisco Legion of Honor's book club on April 26th. I hope some of my Bay Area listeners can join me, though I do admit I am pretty nervous. I know it's ironic, but I'm a little afraid to speak in front of a lot of people. Go figure. If you can't make it on the 26th, don't miss Monet, The Early Years, which runs through May 29th. The show is gorgeous, and you'll certainly look at some of the early portraits of Camille Monet in a whole new light. If you can't make it to the Bay Area, you can learn more about the show at the Legion of Honor's website at legionofhonor.famsf.org. Join me for our next episode in two weeks. Until then, au revoir!